Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Stone of Stumbling, Ten Reflections on the Gospel and World Religions. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 22nd, 2011. Jesus is the stone that makes us stumble, a rock of offense, says this week's epistle, 1 Peter 2.8. In our politically correct culture, few opinions provoke more hostility than the words of Jesus in the gospel for this week. John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or consider Peter's words in Acts 4.12. There's no other name than Jesus under heaven, given to men by which we must be saved. These uncompromising words not only provoke controversy, they raise honest questions. In his World Christian Encyclopedia, David Barrett identifies 10,000 distinct religions, 150 of which have a million or more followers. Is it reasonable to believe that Jesus is the only way and that the other 9,999 religions are false? What's a Christian to think? Many people today favor some version of pluralism, the belief that no one religion can or should be normative for all people. Pluralism insists on a radically egalitarian perspective that grants parity and equal validity to all religions. A traditional Japanese saying suggests that despite their outward differences, all religions connect with the same divine reality. Although the paths to the summit may differ, from the top one sees the same moon. And in the Bhagavad Gita of Hinduism, Lord Krishna proclaims, Whatever path men travel is my path. No matter where they walk, it leads to me. There are two broad types of pluralism, a soft, popular version and a more hard, scholarly version. The soft version appears in popular culture, the media, entertainment, and everyday conversations with friends. It's epitomized in rhetorical questions like, don't all religions really teach the same thing? A hard version among scholars like John Hick argues a sophisticated pluralist position in historical, philosophical, religious treatments of the subject. Both the popular and scholarly versions of religious pluralism dismiss the words of Peter and Jesus as, number one, morally repugnant, number two, intellectually untenable, and number three, politically disastrous. John Hick speaks for many people when he writes of traditional Christian views that, quote, only diehards who are blinded by dogmatic spectacles can persist in such a sublime bigotry. Religious pluralism sounds and feels good, and across the years I've always wanted to believe it. But I can't because I don't think it's true. To me, it's like the beer commercial. Tastes great, less filling. 
Instead, I've come to a number of tentative conclusions that although they don't solve the problem of religious pluralism, they guide my thinking. And so here are ten reflections on the gospel and world religions. Number one, some religious views and practices are clearly false, harmful, and even despicable. I don't think that Aztec human sacrifice and Buddhist almsgiving can expect equal respect. Hindu widow burning, female infanticide, phallic worship, and the mass murder of 913 people at Jim Jones People's Temple in Guyana all strike me as badly wrong. And so pluralism that consistently treats all religions as equally valid comes at the unacceptably high price of endorsing the diabolical as well as the divine. In other words, most people do not and should not believe that, quote, all religions are true. Number two, the claim that all religions teach the same thing is patently false. This is precisely what religions don't do. At a general level, one can easily document broad similarities among religions, such as various renditions of the Golden Rule. But when you examine the historical and theological particulars of religions, you discover drastic differences. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all famous for their radical monotheism. They all teach that their religion alone is right. But Shinto and many African traditional religions are polytheistic. Theravada Buddhism is non-theistic and the scientific materialism of Richard Dawkins is atheistic. Two corollaries fall, follow from this simple observation. First, it's patronizing to say that all religions teach the same thing. To tell a Baha'i person, for example, that her beliefs are really no different than those of a Rastafarian. And furthermore, contradictory religious claims like the one I've just mentioned might all be false, but they can't all be true. Atheism, monotheism, and polytheism, for example, can't all be true. Number three, pluralism tries to solve this problem of contradictory truth claims in two ways. People like John Hick appeal to agnosticism Hick says that the ultimately real, that's capital U, capital R, the ultimately real is unknown and unknowable, forever hidden beyond the scope of human conception, language, or worship. For Hick, religions are imperfect, cultural, relative, and symbolic expressions of the real. But if we apply this criterion to Hick's own religious views of pluralism, how does he stand outside or above the discussion and claim to know the way things really are? Clearly, Hick does not think his position is just one imperfect one among others. He thinks that he's right. He wants to persuade us of that, and he even wants to convert us to his opinion. And why does Hick argue that all religions are true? Why not argue that they are all false? If the appeal to agnosticism remains consistent, you can't and shouldn't confidently claim to know anything 
about ultimate religious reality. A second strategy identifies a so-called common essence in all religions, some lowest common denominator in them all. But this tends towards very subjective interpretation. It stumbles upon point number two that I previously made, and it distorts how adherents understand their own religious traditions. Point number four, Christians don't need to reject everything about other religions. They acknowledge areas of both agreement and disagreement and struggle over the latter. In most areas of human knowledge, when you encounter contradictory views, you don't throw up your hands and concede that they're both true. Instead, you study hard, make an informed choice, then remain open to further insight. Note, too, how this Christian view is far more tolerant and liberal than atheism. For atheism rejects all the beliefs of every religion as necessarily false. Number five, the conundrum of relating 10,000 religions to each other is not only a Christian problem, it's an equal opportunity problem that confronts every religion and every person. <clears throat> Dismissing the Christian approach as wrong-headed, which is one option, does not solve the problem or make it disappear. The problem remains, uh, it awaits an alternative view from atheists, Jews, Muslims, Erastrians, and the 9,995 other religions that David Barrett has identified. Nor do we have infinite alternate solutions. We all operate with limited options. By and large, perhaps Christians do as adequate a job at addressing this thorny issue as believers from other traditions. Number six, I agree with the liberal Jewish writer Michael Kinsley that it's not wrong or intolerant to try to convert other people. If you think that someone is wrong on some issue, it's reasonable to try to change their mind. Christians should vigorously protect and promote the right of every person to hold any faith or no faith at all, and should extend every individual and culture unfailing courtesy and kindness. We should never prohibit, hinder, manipulate, or coerce the beliefs of others. But that doesn't mean you can't conclude that someone's beliefs might be false and consequently try to persuade them of your understanding of what is true. Pluralists like Hick insinuate that you can't disagree with a person and still be nice to them. Number seven, a rule of thumb in biblical interpretation is to understand the complex and ambiguous parts of scripture in light of simple and straightforward passages. For Christians, it's unthinkable that God will treat any person of any time, place, or religion unfairly. Christians are unqualified optimists when it comes to the character of God. There are many things in the Bible that I don't understand, but I have absolute confidence that God will treat every person with perfect love and justice. Number eight, instead of discarding what you don't like or understand in Scripture, 
and ending up with a Bible that reflects only your own biases, Christians should hold together two broad themes, the universal and the particular. First, God desires that no person should perish and that every person be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice not only for Christians, but for the entire cosmos, 1 John 2.2. Peter anticipates the universal restoration of all things, Acts 3.21. But then secondly, we also read in the, the gospel and the Acts and epistles for this week, Jesus alone is God's ultimate means of salvation, the universal and the particular. Number nine, exactly how the universal love of God and the particularity of Jesus fit together isn't entirely clear. I like the view of the Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, who in his book Mere Christianity wrote the following. Here's something that used to puzzle me. Is it not frightfully unfair that this new life should be confined to people who have heard of Christ and been able to believe in him? But the truth is God has not told us what his arrangements about the other people are. We do know that no man can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. This exact point is often invoked when appealing to the salvation of people who lived before the time of Christ, adults with severely limited cognitive abilities, babies and children who die young, and also people today who have no reasonable opportunity to hear the gospel. They are saved by Christ, even though they can't call upon Christ. Number 10. A long time ago, I quit trying to understand everything and admitted the many limitations of my knowledge. St. Augustine advised that we should do our best to seek answers to difficult questions. Having done that, he encouraged us to rest patiently in unknowing. At the end of the day, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me, such as the many questions about religious pluralism, but the parts that I do understand, like loving God with my whole heart and loving my neighbor as myself. The Gospel in the World Religions. For books this week, I review The Rise and Fall of the Bible, The Unexpected History of an Accidental Book. The author is Timothy Beale, New York, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, 2011, 244 pages. When Timothy Beale packed off to a Christian college after high school, a family friend gave him a copy of Harold Lenzel's book, The Battle for the Bible, a manifesto which argued that authentic Christian faith depended upon the inerrancy of the Bible. Beale never read the book. In this new book, The Rise and Fall of the Bible, he intersperses autobiographical storytelling with cultural theology, 
to show how and why he arrived at an alternative to this sort of embattled biblicism. Timothy Beale is the Florence Harkness Professor of Religion at Case Western Reserve, author of a dozen books, an active member at a Presbyterian church, and spouse of a pastor. <clears throat> he has long abandoned his conservative evangelical upbringing of the 1970s, but he still clearly enjoys a vibrant Christian faith. Beale begins by considering the Bible as a cultural icon of black and white religious certitude, similar to the American flag as a cultural icon of patriotism. The Bible is held in highest esteem by Christians. The average home has nine Bibles. In 2008, Bible sales totaled $800 million. In 2005, there were over 6,000 different Bibles you could buy. But therein lies a paradox, for biblical illiteracy remains staggeringly high. Beale suspects this might be due to a disconnect between expectations about what one thinks is in the Bible and the experience of actually reading the Bible and discovering its content. Beale then reconstructs how we got our Bible. Only 10 to 20 percent of the ancient world, for example, knew how to read. Various early texts by different authors freely floated around numerous Christian communities for different reasons. It took 400 years for the canon to be fixed and for what we now call the Bible to be collected and contained in a single book or codex which codex was prohibitively large and expensive for widespread dissemination. The print culture of the 16th century changed all that, of course, and led to the text-critical study of the Bible by scholars like Erasmus. Before long, careful readers observed conflicting accounts about slavery or the death of Judas in Matthew and Acts, and so wondered aloud about questions like divinely sanctioned violence. Beale invokes Derrida's phrase about the impoverishment of univocality and argues instead for polyvocality. In other words, the Bible speaks with many conflicting voices, says Beale. In his view, the canon is closed only in a loose sense of the term and can even be thought of as open. But that's fine with him, and it's not an obstacle to a vibrant faith. Beale is at his best when he tells his own personal story. Much of the historical and theological content of the book, though, is the stuff of a good Bible introduction class. At times, one senses that the autobiographical, though, overwhelms the intellectual, for there are many important and complex questions, the nuances of which are never discussed. Beale has a very particular view of the Bible that he wants to communicate, which authorial intent belies the wonderful notion of polyvocality. Timothy Beale, The Rise and Fall of the Bible, The Unexpected History of an Accidental Book. For film this week, I review Exit Through the Gift Shop. 2010.
This documentary film had the strange effect of making me want to learn much more about its background figures and much less about its main subject. A quirky Frenchman named Thierry Gouta turned his compulsion to video everything to recording the exploits of Los Angeles's graffiti artists. He failed horribly as a filmmaker. But in the process, he befriended many of the world's most famous street artists, including the notorious Banksy of England, whose works appear all over the world. Then comes an unfortunate role reversal. Banksy, Shepard Ferry, Invader, and the other graffiti artists we meet are remarkably creative types on a socially subversive mission. Well, Guta wrongly thinks he himself can become one of them. In a way, he does. He markets himself as MBW, Mr. Brainwash, and has his own exhibition in an L.A. warehouse that sells a million dollars of crass imitations in the first week. There's a delicious irony in the MBW moniker about the gullibility of consumers of art who crave to be part of the next big thing, even when it's a poser like Guta, who is long on self-promotion and short on any real creativity. Exit through the gift shop. Finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem called Sabbath by Wendell Berry the essayist, farmer, and novelist. Listen to Wendell Berry's poem, Sabbath. The mind that comes to rest is tended in ways that it cannot intend, is born, preserved, and comprehended by what it cannot comprehend. Your Sabbath, Lord, thus keeps us by your will, not ours. And it is fit our only choice should be to die into that rest or out of it. Sabbath by Wendell Berry Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 22nd, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.